Hi everyone, Allison here. Much has changed in the world of customer success in the last two years. I covered some of the most significant changes in my keynote at Invest Ottawa's annual conference, including is the rise of the CRO, particularly in contrast with the CCO role, a good or bad thing for customer success? What does customer success mean in a product-led growth company? And what are the latest industry views on quote, CSMs of the gaps or technical CSMs plugging holes in the product? Thanks to Sarah Sedgman, CEO of Learn Experts, for facilitating the conversation. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did and feel free to reply with any thoughts. Let's dive in. Good afternoon, everyone. Bonjour to Le Monde. Thank you for taking the time to join us today. My name is Sonia Shorey, and I'm privileged to serve as the Vice President Strategy, Marketing and Communications with Invest Ottawa. Welcome to Driving Customer Success, an International Women's Week event. I'd like to begin today by acknowledging that the land on which we gather virtually is the traditional unceded territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabe people. We're grateful to have the opportunity to be present in this territory and come together as a national community. Further, I want to respect and affirm the inherent and treaty rights of all Indigenous peoples across this land. We recognize the contributions of the Métis, Inuit, and all Indigenous peoples have and continue to make, both in shaping and strengthening this community and our country as a whole. We also want to extend our sincere support to the people of Ukraine. Our thoughts and prayers and hearts are with you. We stand united with you. And we call for global peace to all those impacted by strife, including support for those in Russia who are fighting for justice. Here at Invest Ottawa, those of you who are acquainted with us, you know we are incredibly passionate about entrepreneurship and propelling the growth and success as best we can of all founders from every walk of life. Today's event is truly dedicated to you. If you are leading a scaling company and striving to achieve revenue growth through existing customers by maximizing customer outcomes, return on investment and success, this event is for you. It's your exclusive opportunity to gain inspiration and actionable insight from Allison Pickens, one of the world's leading experts on customer success and recurring revenue growth. Coming to us direct from Silicon Valley, Allison is a solo GP investor, independent director of the board who spends her time supporting CEOs and their teams. She's a world-recognized expert on how to grow through your existing customers through better adoption, retention, expansion, and advocacy having invented, refined, and popularized many best practices in this area. She's the former CEO of Gainsight, scaling that SaaS company from its infancy to a multi-product platform, propelling the firm from 1 million to 80 million ARR. And she's a pioneer of thought leadership and go-to-market strategy and customer success. We're delighted to welcome her to the first time to our community today, and she will be joined by Ottawa's own customer success expert, Founder and CEO of Learn Expert Sarah Sedgman, someone who is certainly very well known and, and respected across our community. I'm delighted to welcome them both to our virtual stage. Sarah, I'm going to give you the reins. Thank you so much to you both for taking the time to join us today and helping our founders propel their success. Awesome. Thank you so much, Sonia. And I'm super excited. I was really excited when Sonia came and said, Would you lead the fireside chat with Allison Pickens? I Oh my gosh, I know Allison Pickens. And of course, I said yes. And Allison, I watched you through your career and admired from afar for many, many years. And of course, uh, in different roles, I've had used Gainsight and attended the conferences, so saw you as well. And so I'm super excited about the session today. And I know all of us joining will learn some great advice and some actionable tips and tricks that we can take back to help scale our company. So let's get started and we'll leave a little bit of time at the end for live question and answer. And let's start with just a question about your career journey to date. So I know you've had an interesting career journey and maybe tell us a little bit about how you ended up in technology, influencing customer success, and then uh, where you are today as an investor. Well, first of all, thank you so much for hosting the Fireside Chat, Sarah, and I'm so excited to be here with all the founders today. So in terms of my journey, I started from the beginning. I grew up on the East Coast and of the U.S. in suburban Philadelphia, ended up finding my way to New York City, the, you know, the big city nearby, where I started out my career in 
essentially business boot camp. So I, I was in management consulting at a company called BCG, learned a lot of generalist skills about how businesses are built. And later followed some colleagues I really respected to Bay Capital, where I was working in private equity. Very different type of investing from what I do now. We were investing more in, you know, mature companies. These were leveraged buyouts. Although it wasn't my great passion in life, I did learn so much about how companies are valued. What are the key drivers from a financial standpoint? And was able to tie that back, given that we actually were pretty involved with the leadership teams, the companies we invested in. I was, I was able to sort of see how the financial models that we would build would correspond to operational initiatives on the ground. And as a side note, I would say that was an extremely beneficial skill to build. And, and you know, I noticed a lot of leaders sometimes trying to build that you know, over the course of their career. So, which I think is, is a great idea. I had an entrepreneurial itch. I didn't know anyone who did anything entrepreneurial. I didn't know anyone in tech. I was in Boston at the time when I was at Bay Capital. I picked up this book that was written by a Stanford professor about entrepreneurship, and it really stuck a chord with me emotionally. I just love the idea of thinking through innovative ways to improve society and being able to leverage my creativity to go make a difference for other people. You know, in college, I had had aspirations to go into sort of public service, like in a government role in some capacity. But over time, realized that my creativity, at least in that moment, was best channeled through business. And so I decided, well, all the entrepreneurial people seem to be in Silicon Valley. So I'm just going to go out there. And I, I ended business school ended up being my like vehicle for going out there. And uh, while I was in school, I experimented with a bunch of different company ideas. Nothing really stuck. But then after that, I ended up getting in touch with the new CEO at Gainsight because Bain Capital's venture arm had uh, led a very early funding round in the company shortly after Nick, our new CEO, had taken over from the founder. In kind of an unusual situation, like which very infrequent nowadays. But basically, it was this new founding moment. You know, we inherited 30 customers and like a pretty bare bones product and then scaled that out over the time I was there to north of 80 million in annual recurring revenue. I became COO over time, built a lot of different teams and spent a lot of time on our content marketing since this is something we could talk about. You know, Gainsight was deeply immersed in this category creation exercise, trying to popularize best practices about customer success, which ultimately also would, you know, pave the way for our software sale. So because one of the teams I was building was the customer success organization, I ended up being at this locus of incubation internally, hearing feedback from our customers, engaging with the community and trying to sort of gather a lot of the things that we and people were learning about this very nascent at the time profession. When I was leaving Gainsight, I was thinking, hey, how do I spend all my time with the kinds of B2B SaaS founders that I had advised while I was at Gainsight, since that was the market that we were selling to. And kind of through a winding path, realized that by investing in these founders, I could formalize relationships with people that I wanted to work with. So I raised a venture capital fund, which I'm I'm the sole general partner, really the only person working at it. There are a lot of service providers that help me, but really it's just me essentially as an angel investor, but with additional capital sources. And I invest in companies cross stages, everything from pre-seed to pre-IPO. Since Gainsight traverse those stages and I've worked with companies across them. And I also spend my time as a board director at DBT Labs, which is a data transformation company and a public company called Convol, which is making the transition to SaaS and recurring revenue. So, you know, and in a way I, I have a portfolio approach, but, but I, I'd say actually the way I spend my time is a lot more consistent with that, which is kind of like I'm a fractional independent board director to a lot of different companies and still writing a lot, you know, speaking sometimes and, um, you know, excited to engage with founders in different ways. Sam, and I'm sure those companies really benefit from your experience, which we'll talk about next. And I do want to also get into talking about uh, how Gainsight influenced that customer success, because I think a lot of companies followed your great example of how successful that was. But maybe let's jump into Gainsight a little bit because it's software and a company focused on customer success and the journey, which I know a lot of people joining today are interested to learn about. Maybe tell me a bit about your time at Gainsight. How did you, what were some of the things that the company did or you and Nick did to scale the company from 1 million to, you know, 
billion. And what challenges did you navigate to achieve success? A lot of the founders and the leaders joining today, you know, they're trying to scale their companies quickly as well, just like you and Nick did so many years ago. You know, it's always a challenging question to summarize everything that that worked and didn't work over a six year period. But I, I've tried to put together some thoughts about things that we did well. I'm also happy to talk about mistakes that other folks can avoid. I'd say, especially in the early stage, we really nailed some key pillars of category creation. You know, as I mentioned, like, category creation is essentially like, how do you help define together with your customers a new type of software that is serving a specific pain point, essentially carve out a space for yourself in the broader tech stack that your customers have. And, uh, you know, as part of that motion in the early days, there were a few things in our favor. One was we had what, what we like to call people market fit, which meant that we had the kind of culture and personality that really resonated with the personalities of the people that we were selling to. You know, if you think about, first of all, there's a whole variety of personalities in the customer success world. But especially in the early days, customer success people tended to be gregarious, social, really interested in helping, a little more extroverted, like to spend a lot of their time with other people. And we were people like that too, like, like the kind of people who were built, the people who were building Gainsight were, were like that. And so initially when the market was pretty crowded, actually, with a number of different customer success providers, I think the fact that people liked us, frankly, was really important. We also did a lot in terms of career empowerment for the customers that we were selling to and, and generally folks in our community. We, you know, we saw software as being a tool that people would use to advance their careers. And the career empowerment really was kind of one of the ultimate outcomes that customers would achieve in using our software. So we took that angle pretty seriously and championed a profession, you know, through content, through events, but also through certifications that we produced, other courses, helping to place people in jobs. I can't tell you how many people came to us and said, hey, I'm looking for my next job or hey, I'm looking to hire someone. Do you know anyone? And we literally had a Google sheet where we would match people. Amazing. Yeah, we, yeah, we often joke that if the software business didn't work out, we would just become headhunters. <laughs> and, you know, I'll mention a couple other things and then turn it back to you, Sarah. But two other things. One is we enabled identification with a community. A lot of people, especially in the early days of customer success, I think felt pretty lonely. Often they were only one of a couple people in customer success at their company. They might be sort of at the bottom of the totem pole, so to speak, bottom of the ladder, you know, in terms of like hierarchy at their company. People didn't really respect what they were doing. And when you take people like that who feel disenfranchised, unempowered, you bring them together, there's so many interesting conversations that happen. All of a sudden, people are like, wow, you experienced all the problems that I did. And, you know, bringing people together, I think, made people identify the community and the movement with our software, which, you know, helped us grow the business. And then finally, I'd say, you know, the product leadership in the early days was really important. We were able to, I think, create links between the career empowerment that we were looking to generate with the product. So as I mentioned before, you know, these were actually features that would help you do better in your job and ultimately grow your career. Yes. Yeah, so two interesting things from that. I've never heard of people market fit. So I love that. <laughs> and I can relate to the story you're talking about because I definitely knew the Pulse conference, which was the Gainsight conference before I knew Gainsight. So we would come to the Pulse conference and then of course, Nick would host that. And then, hey, voila, Nick was the CEO of Gainsight, this cool tool. And I think I think a lot of companies and founders definitely in the industry today I see are following that lead, focusing on community, the people, gathering together a group of people that have a similar need, and then talking about the SaaS or the solution later. So it was definitely pioneering a great approach that is working today as well. So maybe we could switch to trends in the industry around customer success, you know, thinking back to your time at Gainsight, but also now, what trends did you see happening? You talked to some just a minute ago, but what were some main trends? And then how did Gainsight influence and shape really what customer success means to a lot of us in the industry today? 
Yeah. Sometimes it's difficult to distinguish between trends that are happening outside you and then trends that you are directly generating or influencing. I think ideally as a software company, especially you're kind of nurturing waves that already exist as opposed to trying to, you know, force the wave yourself. I'd say we we were doing a mix of that. One trend that was certainly happening was that more and more companies were starting to hire customer success people. And the reason was because founders were starting to realize, partly from the influence from their investors and their board members, that net dollar retention, and, and actually in the early days, it was more usually referred to as gross dollar retention. These were metrics that mattered. And you know what would often happen is company would take off, sell to a bunch of customers, raise a ton of money, and then in the boardroom, they would have to report, oh, well, we brought in, you know, 20 new customers, but we lost 10. And, you know, first, like VCs might give them credit for the growth, but then there'd be like, well, it's a lot more costly to replace the 10 that you just lost than to just renew them. And so there'd start to be concerning conversations about something that became known as the leaky bucket and we had about the harmfulness churn. So a lot of discussion about churn as, as the culprit. We even, actually, right before I joined Gainsight had written a children's book about Sally and the churn bot. <laughs> it's the churn bot being this kind of like evil robot that was going to destroy the city. It was actually, by the way, in terms of category creation, this is an effective tactic because it meant that people who often had ill-defined jobs could go home and explain to their kids what they did at work. And, you know, that was, I think, impactful for them emotionally. Anyway, you know, there was this trend of companies and their boards and founders caring a lot about this leaky bucket of churn. We, besides facilitating dialogue about that and finding ways to help companies prevent churn, we did a few more deliberate things. Like we popularized the executive roles related to customer success. Beginning customer success managers often reported into salespeople or like some other generalist leader. We said we believe that customer success should have a seat at the executive table. There should be a VP role. And over time, we talked about the chief customer officer role, which would oversee an organization consisting of customer success management, pro services, and support. And we also popularized the role of customer success operations. We said that just like sales teams have sales ops, customer success teams have customer success ops. And, you, you know, as a VP, you need that person to help you instrument processes across your team that are scalable, identify, you know, data that helps you understand your customers, help you forecast, um, help you staff customer success managers with accounts, and generally you know, run your team. And, you know, the CS ops role, besides, I think, helping teams manage themselves better and help, especially being an enabling function for the VP, these ops people ended up also being the administrators for software. So in a way, we created a role that was required in order to have our software be like adopted and implemented. So, you know, those were, I think, seeing like the evolution of the function was that that was probably one of the biggest trends that we saw and also, you know, influenced in, uh, you know, especially in the early days. I'd say like at this point, customer success has really taken on a life of its own. And there are a lot of different things happening, which which I'm sure we'll get to over the course of our conversation. Yeah, and definitely you, you mentioned the chief customer officer role that, that really did come through the influence of Gainsight and you and Nick, where today this is a common role in many companies. And many companies that I work with, you know, even early stage and scale up are asking the question, is it time? Do we need customer success managers? And I think back, you know, even 10 years ago, that wasn't a common question. So I certainly saw the evolution of that throughout the last 10 years. Flash forward to today, Gainsight happened and there's a couple other questions I have around, you know, your book and some other things related to Gainsight. But flash forward to today, you invest in companies, you sit on boards, you know, you're in the boardroom asking those tough questions. And I love the Sally in the bucket analogy. <laughs> I can't imagine sitting around the dinner table explaining to the kids about net customer retention, but Sally in the bucket is great. But now you're in the boardroom asking those questions and helping companies grow. So what, what are some lessons learned that you shared with them, maybe on a, a broader sense, you know, around the customer success and retention rates, but also just how to scale and grow. Yeah. So there are a few things that 
I tend to emphasize a lot with, and by the way, the companies I work with are usually like venture backed SaaS companies that are growing very quickly. One thing that we tend to talk a lot about is the importance of OKRs, which are objectives and key results. Essentially, it's a methodology for setting goals. That tends to be the best methodology I've noticed for generating alignment across the company. And if you've worked against for success, especially for a while, you know that one of the biggest challenges to achieving great outcomes for your customers, great experience for your customers is misalignment across functions. There's a disjointed customer journey, sales and customer success, marketing, product manager, all different pages about what customers need, what we should be doing for them. OKRs are a way to get everyone on the same page. Here's what our, you know, here's how high level what our company goals are. And here is the piece of, of those that's owned by your function. Um, so you can start to have, you know, OKRs focused on product releases how, and, and explain, okay, how is each function contributing to that, the success of that product release? You can have OKRs around, you know, net dollar retention and likewise have different teams who are owning different components or different drivers of net dollar retention. So I'd say companies, especially pop my prodding, but I'd say in general, companies are building OKRs into the way they work much earlier than they used to. I mean, I see startups with 10 or 15 people that have an OKR process. And I think it's important not to over-orchestrate it too early on because you're learning, you're experimenting, but it's still important to have a mechanism for alignment. Another thing that I, I notice a lot, which I'd say I advise on a bit, but but more it's kind of just a fact of life. The CRO role has become much more prevalent than it was when I we started out at Gainsight. In fact, I don't, I'm not sure I had heard the chief revenue officer role when I was starting out there. But CRO has become a very common profession, partly because of the rise of product-like growth companies, or uh, which are is often the same as companies that have a self-serve model where users can buy software on their own through their credit card, through the company's website. What tends to happen in companies like that is because there's such a scaled approach and an automated approach to working with customers, you need like a perfect alignment between all the different customer facing functions. And therefore, it makes sense for those functions to report into one person who tends to have the chief revenue officer title sometimes a COO title. I think product-led growth is one thing that spawned that title. Another reason why that title I think is more popular is because founders are much more technical than they used to be. I think especially with the rise of dev tools as a, a cat, developer tools as a category, data infrastructure as category, security, you see a lot of very technical founders who are coming from engineering or product management backgrounds. They don't have go-to-market experience, but they're incredible product visionaries. And so they tend to bring on someone who, you know, is typically, sometimes they might be co-founder, but typically they're not. Usually they're, you know, an operational, operationally minded person that's running, you know, all customer facing functions. So that's, I think, been a really big trend and one that, although it, it's replacing in some way the title of chief customer officer, I think it's very beneficial to the customer experience, to customers achieving outcomes, driving net dollar retention, because it enables such um, strong alignment across customer-facing functions. Hmm. Yeah. On that, I'm going ad hoc with a question, but do you see customers reacting to that chief revenue officer title versus chief customer officer title? It's a great question. To be totally honest with you, I, and along the lines of your question, I don't like the title because it's so inward focused, right? I mean, if you're a chief revenue officer meeting with a customer, that customer is upset, trying to get value, like it doesn't feel good to know that like the senior most person you're talking to is someone who's just concerned with or seems to be just concerned with revenue. I think the practical reality nowadays is that CROs know that having incredible product experiences is the route to greater revenue. So there's much and and that linkage is, I think, is much more embedded into the way that companies operate now. So I think that's beneficial. But would it make sense for that title to be chief customer officer and just expand the role of CCO to include sales and marketing? Yeah, I mean, maybe. I remember there actually Yamini Rangan, who used to be in a kind of COO type role at Dropbox, she chose the title chief customer officer, even though she was running marketing sales partnerships and other sort of go-to-market functions instead of chief revenue officer or COO because she wanted customers to know that she was so focused on them. And now she's CEO and HubSpot. So, you know, shows that actually 
embracing that title can be good for your career path. Yeah, I've thought, I've often thought about that because the the CCO, like you were saying, came came about in the industry, and then CRO has probably only been the last five years. I think that it's become popular in an effort, I think, to help the sales leaders have a C title. Then there's the CCO and the CRO, and and companies are trying to make the decision on what is the best title to reflect what those roles actually need to impact and how they need to present to the customer. So yeah, it'll be interesting, I think, in in the next five years to see what happens there. (laughs) Maybe a whole new C title, well, a category will come and include both. It's a great (laughs) question. And you know what, one more thought on that. I think what was great and, and still is great about the chief customer officer title is that customer is is in the title and it gives the impression that there is at least a team that really cares about customers. But as I think we've talked about before, Sarah, as well, and I, I know it's like it's sort of in your train of thought and like designing these questions, the customers need to be thought of by all functions, right? I remember even when I was CCO at Gainsight, which is a role that I held at one point, you know, I had my customer success managers, I had my pro services folks, I had customer support. And, but the whole organization was called customer success. That was sort of the, the name of the overall cross-functional team. And we talked a lot about how it was sort of unfortunate that the pro services folks couldn't have customer success in their title because like we wanted them to care about customer success too. Same thing with support. And, you know, over time, other functions, especially product management, have also taken on the mantle of ensuring success for customers. So in a way, I almost feel like it's a fulfillment of the customer success movement that there are in more and more companies we're seeing fewer people with customer in their title because it's become broadly known as being a company-wide imperative, not just something that one department owns. So maybe it's a contrarian perspective, but I think probably a good thing overall. Yeah, maybe I'll jump to that question next and then we'll get to your book because I'd love to hear about that too and where we can get it. I think the thought process around everyone should be a customer champion in the organization is starting to take hold. Partly, I think, because of the influence of Gainsight and the thinking around a customer journey. So that's another term, I think, over the last 10 years that has become a lot more used by companies. Certainly, as I, again, meet with with scaling companies um, in an advisory role, often they'll say, I think I need to create a customer journey. I don't know how to do that. And so thinking about that customer journey, it starts mapping all the different intersections with the customer and what they need, the knowledge that they need, the success criteria. But what advice would you give to founders and leaders, executives of companies that are joining this call today to really influence that paradigm shift or that mind shift that everyone should care about the customer? The whole reason we have a company is for the customer. Definitely. So, you know, I think that there's been huge progress in companies caring about customers throughout, as you noted. There have been a few reasons for that. I think one is that companies have become much more mission-driven or purpose-driven, where founder presents themselves as saying, you know, I created this company in order to see this particular change happening in the world. And the reality is that if you're a software company, the way that change happens in the world is by your customers evolving in a particular way. So like literally the mission of your company is tied up with the impact that you're making on customers. And and so I think that articulating your purpose, also articulating how your company values pertain to your purpose, how you're going to like essentially embed your purpose in a way, and as well as ensure you're interacting well together as a team and with your customers. That that becomes, you know, I think very impactful and ensures that everyone at the company is is customer oriented. I think also to your point, like there's been a greater focus on designing thoughtful customer journeys, I think in part because of this trend towards self-serve and product-led growth businesses. I'm seeing really interesting evolutions in the journey there where there's a combination of automated interactions with customers and then human-led interactions with, with customers. You know, to give you an example, I was talking with a dev tools, developer tools company recently. And they, you know, they started out an open source, commercialized a product. 
And when people sign up for their product initially by signing up for a free trial, that user gets an email that is automated, but addressed from a customer success manager at the company saying, hi, so excited you've signed up. I know that as a developer, especially, you probably just want to try out the product yourself without my interference. But should you have any questions, feel free to respond to this email and we can set up a call. So it, it's someone who's available and presenting themselves as the CSM, but it's putting the customer's preferences up front, which is, you know, developers usually want to just try the product. And then, you know, over the course of the two-week trial, you'll get a small number of other emails, you know, one that explains case studies of other successful customers who've tried the product, you know, how exactly they use the product. The system will kind of notice at some point if you haven't completed a particular action during your free trial, which tends to correlate with the conversion from free trial to paid. And there'll be an automated email saying, hey, we noticed you didn't do XYZ. If you need instructions on how to do that, click here. You can also set up time with us. You know, and, and then once the person graduates to being paid, there are ways that the company detects masses of users that aggregate at particular companies so that there can be a corporate level contract formalized. Now, this company in particular actually was able to get to 600K plus ARR relationships with really large companies purely through these self-serve mechanisms, like not even having to form a corporate level contract. Now they're thinking about forming corporate level contracts with some of these customers, which will probably un uh, sort of unleash even more available budget for them to tap into at these companies. And the founders saying, you know, like, I, I'm not sure I really want to have a sales team because really the success of our company today, their $10 million rapidly growing company is entirely from just having an incredible product with like, you know, strong customer journey. Maybe we should just have customer success people who like formalize these corporate level contracts and ensure that these companies are continuing to have great outcomes and experiences with us through the self-led behaviors of these individual users, as well as through, you know, more corporate level relationship. That's interesting. It's really neat what we can do today with SaaS-based products. So on the cloud, you can see, you know, what is the user doing? Certainly how this company's leveraged that in their sales process is interesting. But also, you know, maybe the buying habits of customers are changing too. You know, perhaps just like, you know, we don't like marketing calls on our phone anymore. <laughs> perhaps, well, you know, I mean, perhaps the industry is changing a bit in terms of how they want to engage as well with the sales process. So it'd be interesting to see if that changes as well. Um, and there is one question here, which I think is asking, I hope I get it right. Are there, you know, one or two things or some things that the board can do to move the needle more for it to help companies really put a focus on the customer to drive net revenue retention? Yeah, I think, first of all, making that dollar retention a primary metric that's looked at in the overall dashboard of the company is really important. I was actually just reading a sort of year end update from one company that I work with. And they, you know, they have not just net dollar retention as a high level metric, but also net promoter score as a high level metric on their on their word dashboard. So making it priority, I think, is is very important. This is a bit of a contrarian perspective, but my thought is that if you emphasize the building of incredible product experiences, you invest in hiring amazing product people, amazing engineers in the beginning, you're building great process among them, you will end up with a company that's very customer focused. So and this is a different, I think, perspective than what I had when I started out at Gainsight. And especially at the time, there was just this feeling that like, the customer success profession specifically was carrying the the torch. I should call it carrying the torch, like yeah. you know, in the Olympics opening ceremony for like the customer success movement. And I think that that was really true for many years. But what I actually found in working with our customers and our community was that their biggest obstacle to carrying that torch was that their product teams sometimes were not particularly strong. That has changed tremendously, like especially in the past five years. You know, there are, I think there's a much better understanding as to how to build incredible products, how to start with the user in mind as opposed to a senior level buyer that may not care about, you know, how products are being used by their team. But, you know, the concept of shelfware, which was a risk, you know, for a lot of companies early in the customer success movement, 
doesn't really exist anymore because companies just refuse to pay for products they aren't using. And, and I think that's partly a result of people getting more accustomed to incredible products. Absolutely. I think metrics is a great way that the board, the board can ask for metrics, which drives accountability with the company, but also ensures that the company is defining what metrics drive their success and reporting on that. And certainly from my own experience, and I had shared this with you at one of the companies I worked at where I was the chief customer officer, we put in uh, a new roadmap. We called it the customer journey, but a roadmap for what the customer experiences all the way from, you know, first learning about what the company saw, what problem they solve, all the way to support to renewal. And in implementing Gainsight, um, we were able to actually track those things and then get analytics on them. Um, And we were able to build a health score and metrics around the health of the customer. And then we communicated that throughout the organization so that people were aware that we had customers that were red um, and needed help. And we had customers that were green and we could identify and help the ones that needed help. Um, And it really impacted the health score uh, quite significantly uh, just in six months. And then that impacted in turn the reoccurring revenue and the renewals. So uh, metrics, I think, is a really key place to start. Okay, one more question coming up from Sonia. What do you think is the single most important action a founder can take during the early stages of development to drive customer success and why? Well, in the very early stages of a company, typically there are a couple of things that happen. So the team will spend like a few months building a product and they're, you know, working with design partners, you know, really closely. By the way, just the fact that they have early design partners that they're working with to like improve the product is an act of customer success. So, you know, I think the the fact that like most startups do that nowadays, very customer oriented. And then, you know, as they start to amass more design partners, they develop a wait list of other companies that are looking to use their product. They tend to start gearing up for some kind of public launch. And usually there's like a big announcement around that, maybe a TechCrunch article that's also announcing their C round. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of like marketing communications energy focus around that launch. After that, you know, there, there tends to be assuming the communications went well, a lot of signups for the product. And, you know, it's important to be prepared for that. I often see companies that do this well, you know, the founder is budgeting a fair bit of their time to themselves onboarding new customers, even if they have a self-serve product, because they want to make sure they understand like firsthand what the customer is going through when they first experience the product. And That in turn helps them design a more scalable onboarding process that might be automated. I noticed that more and more startups are bringing on customer success managers as like their first non-technical hire because they want to make sure that like they have enough people who are, you know, dedicated to onboarding. And often those initial people are kind of hybrid product managers, customer success folks, because especially at that stage, what's most important for long-term customer success is ensuring that the customer feedback that you're hearing, the behaviors you're noticing, that you're baking what you want into the product very early. Great. Okay, let's switch to your book. And then there's another question I'll come back to that's in the chat. Okay, so in 2020, so recently, just through the pandemic, no problem, um, you published a book with Nick Meta called The Customer Success Economic, Why Every Aspect of Your Business Model Needs a Paradigm Shift. And in that book, you shared some simple formulas, and we talked about that as well earlier in the week. But how would you recommend perhaps companies think about these simple formulas? You know, what are they? Or I think you mentioned even some of those simple formulas shift over time. So maybe elaborate on yeah. I'll mention actually two frameworks that were in the book. And then if I were writing a new book now, how would I alter them? So one framework in the book, something we talked about a lot at Gainsight, which is CS equals CO plus CX, meaning customer success equals customer outcomes plus customer experiences. The thinking there was, you know, people were often trying to find what what does it mean to like, you know, have customer success. And what we said was that, look, you have to do two things. You have to generate outcomes for your customers from using the software, meaning they have to have ROI from their purchase of the product. 
And then two, they, the experience of getting to that outcome has to be pleasant. And that means like being delighted along the way, ease of use, not having a lot of friction and working with your team. It's important to have both, not one or the other, because, you know, in, a, in particularly a top-down model, if you are generating, let's say you're generating great ROI from your customer, for your customers, but working with you is painful, they will probably renew their contract with you, but they probably won't expand for that new use case because they won't push it on whatever team is like looking for a new product. They might open it up to RFP. On the other hand, if people have a great experience working with you, they like you a lot, it's easy, your support team is great, but they're not achieving outcomes from using your product, they may not renew at all. This is the kind of conversation that you end up having with customers where they're like, hey, so sorry, we can't renew, but you guys are great. We love you so much. We really, we still want to save friends. And you're like, you're still breaking up with me. Like, don't tell me I'm a great person. You're breaking up with me. <laughs> so you, you need both. You need to generate outcomes and have great experiences. Now, in terms of how I would adapt that framework for, you know, two years later, product-like growth has really taken off during that time. So when you're in a self-serve model, outcomes and experiences are the same because you have an individual user that's just trying to get value. They're trying to make their lives more productive. And productivity is a ratio. It's like outcomes to how much effort do I have to put in? That's what productivity is. And so it's literally CO and CX like baked into the same thing. It's a, it's just a ratio, which is a productivity ratio. And so I, maybe I would call it a CS equals CO divided by, you know, effort expended. <laughs> that That's kind of like the new framework for the self-serve model. I'll mention one other framework that I mentioned in the book and how I would change it. In the book, I describe three types of CSMs that I notice in the industry. The first is something I call CSM for the gaps, which meant the kind of CSM that is working with customers in order to essentially like band-aid over issues in the product. They're filling the gaps in terms of value delivery that the product isn't able to achieve. And I describe this role as usually counting as COGS, cost of goods sold on your P&L, which is generally not a good cost lever drive. You'd rather be driving like sales and marketing because there's some impact on future revenue. Also, I pointed out that this role becomes necessary because the product is deficient which is, as I have noted many times, is not a good thing. And so I, I kind of, I poo-pooed that type of CSM a little bit I think because it, ideally you don't have to have them. That's what I said. And then I said, you know, CSM number two is CSM for value delivery. They are like is prescribing a new way of working and, and kind of helping customers go across this customer journey so that they can adopt best practices and, and tra transform how they're working. That's sort of taking for granted that the product is good. And so the CSM can focus on more transformative activities leading to renewal for your company as well. And then there's a third type of CSM, which was focused on value capture, CSMs who actually own an upsell target. And so maybe the product is so good and value delivery ha happens so seamlessly that the CSM can focus all of their time on upsell. Now, I think this framework made sense a few years ago, and it made sense in the context of a top-down model. But there have been a couple categories of software that have challenge my thinking on this. One of them is like very technical products, which might be data infrastructure tools, developer tools. In situations like this, what makes a lot more sense, and particularly because most of these companies have to some degree a product-led model, is you have two people working side by side with the customers across the entire customer journey, no handoff. You have a salesperson that's owning revenue throughout, and then you have a customer success person that actually probably has the title solution architect. And their job is to be really, really deep in the product. They might have even been like former engineers themselves. They don't own revenue. They don't own a renewal target. They don't own expansion. But their job is to really be, you know, a deep expert, which ultimately is what helps customers be successful of having, you know, deep technical expert. So where previously I kind of challenged the value and necessity of having someone who's like CSM for the gaps. Now I see the product oriented CSM as being critical, you know, for, for many companies with sales owning revenue throughout. Yeah, that's really interesting because I know, you know, sometimes the CSM feels like I keep checking in with the customer, you know, do you need help with anything? You know, kind of walking through that checklist of, you know, is this working, that working? I'll connect you. They're almost like the connector back to the 
organization. Um, but the customer may not be feeling that there's a lot of value there, but definitely a deep expert coming in and helping them really get value from, from the solution I can see uh, makes a lot of sense. And now you have a topic for your next book, kind of like <laughs> That's the like formula that. is revised. Maybe the, the title of the book can be the new formula. <laughs> there you go. You Where can people get your book if they're interested? You can get it on Amazon. Just search for the customer success economy. It'll come out or maybe we could insert the link here. And also, sure. you know, one thing that I could do is, well, I, I do, if you want to see more of my recent content, I do publish a lot on my Substack, a couple of okay. times in podcast newsletters. Awesome. We just have eight minutes left. The, the hour is flying by. We, as Sonia said, we probably could have had three hours. The, another question that came in, with Gainsight focusing on category creation, how did you navigate with customers where you were looking to influence change to the internal processes that they had been used to for a long time? I, I know a lot of SaaS companies, especially as they're inventing new um, ways of doing things in the industry, are faced with this challenge. This is, I think, the hardest part of building Gainsight was that often I think the vision that people had and that we had for where customer success could go felt sometimes light years ahead of where we all were <laughs> in the sense that, you know, often people who didn't have any customer success experience were coming into the industry for the first time because they, they saw the rise of this profession. So they might have been coming from a different role and were trying to learn a new job. Also, often the leaders of these functions were taking on that role for the first time. Some of them may not have ever been in a leadership role, but and others might have just come from a different functional leadership role. We'd see a lot of like former salespeople trying to run customer success teams, former support leaders trying to run customer success teams, sometimes product leaders. And then so everyone was kind of learning about how to do this new job. And it meant that people, frankly, got fired a lot. I mean, we would see a lot of customer success teams being like disbanded, reorganized, leaders leaving after 18 months. It, it might have been like the CS leader was frustrated that the CEO didn't understand customer success, or it might have been that the CS leader was failing. And maybe, maybe not, it, maybe it wasn't their fault. Maybe it's just a really hard thing to do. And people were really, you know, frustrated with, you know, the founders were really, they, they might have been really frustrated by kind of the lack of support that they were receiving internally. So I think the sort of volatility among these teams was challenging for us. We were often in roles where we were coaching people on, you know, how to do the profession in addition to hadn't used in order to help them figure out how to use the software. We became very prescriptive over time in a more methodical way to help people learn how to do the job and also adopt software. And by the way, we were learning at the same time. So was, that was also difficult. Not like we were like made experts on this topic. We had to learn too. So yeah, lots going on. We ultimately created something that we called the elements of customer success, which was sort of a reference to the periodic table of elements in a chemistry context. <laughs> we had this grid that had, you know, each box was a different outcome that or a different goal that customer success teams would typically have. It might like it might be lifecycle management, renewal management, product experience, things like that. And then for each element, we would have certain processes that we would recommend. And sometimes they would vary depending on the type of company, but we like to have, you know, pretty specific general best practices that could then be instrumented easily in our software. This actually gets, I talked about people market fit before. I think there's another sort of variant of product market fit, which is the more well-known term, and that's outcomes or I would I call it product outcomes fit. How are you mapping your product to the outcomes that you're helping your customers achieve? It's kind of like taking a challenger sales approach to your customers where you're helping to, in a thoughtful way, like challenge your customers about the assumptions they have about how they should be doing their jobs and then guide them along to a certain outcome. Final thing I'll note on this topic was that it was pretty motivating for customers to use elements because one, it was much easier than trying to reinvent the wheel, but Two, we did a benchmarking study where we were able to show that as you adopted the elements over time in three different stages, companies would achieve, it was a 13 percentage point improvement in gross dollar retention and a 33 percentage point improvement in net dollar retention. 
So, you know, if you, if you present a customer success leader and a CEO with those improvements, they'll say like, you know, sign me up. A great motivator to, to be on this more prescriptive path. Absolutely. <laughs> sign me up. 100%. We are nearing the end. I'm going to end with a last question. And then I know, Sonia, you have a few last conclusions. Maybe just what would be the top one or two things that you would leave the founders and the, the executives who have attended today with? I think the final topic that would be fun to cover is something that I call customer-led selling. I started sort of blogging a little bit about this back in like 2017, where the notion was, it's kind of fascinating how much cold calling there is still in our industry, where, you know, salesperson reaches out to someone cold. Probably all of us have received messages like this on LinkedIn in particular. And, you know, often you just ignore the message. But I think one of the reasons is because, first of all, you may not trust this person, but also when someone's pitching you a hypothetical value that they theoretically could deliver, it just doesn't sound convincing. As a recipient of one of these emails, I'd so much rather hear, here are a few companies, like literally, or maybe even people that you know that have used our product and achieved a lot of value. And here's them talking about it, right? Like that's actually, that would be interesting. Be like, oh, you know, I didn't know that Sarah was a customer of XYZ product. And oh, here's like a video clip of her talking about why she loved this product so much. Well, I trust Sarah's judgment. Maybe this could be appropriate for me too. So, you know, I started kind of blogging about this five years ago. And then last year, I tweeted again about it or I posted LinkedIn. And I ended up getting connected with the founder of a company who was enabling this. And it was like, it was this, we ended up having this total mind meld about it. He actually had a much better way of orchestrating this than I had even envisioned, which is usually the case with like founders and their investors. But I'm going to make a shameless plug for this because it took me years to find it. Now that it's here, I'm all about it. That's just the name of the product. And they make it easy for customer facing people, whether you're in customer success or marketing or sales to solicit short testimonials via video from your customers. And, and often these people are like, using their iPhone to take a video of themselves in their kitchen, talking about an amazing product. Then, you know, as a vendor, you could easily like take that video clip, share it on your website, you know, share it with prospects that are similar to the person in the video and share it with customers that are trying to get motivated to get more value. So I'd say like, if I had one type, it would be orchestrate customer advocacy. I love that. I'm going to experiment with that myself. <laughs> I love it. Okay, well, thank you so much, Allison. This hour for me was incredibly fun. And of course, talking about things I'm passionate about as well is always fun. And I learned more from you in the last hour again. So thank you for that. And I'll hand it over to Sonia. Thank you both so much. This was an incredible masterclass. Invest, Invest Ottawa is going to share this so broadly. I've had so many comments, both directly and through the chat about, will this be made available? Just an incredibly rich interview with so many practical insights that you can implement to drive that recurring revenue and customer success. Thank you both for being role models, for joining us today and sharing so openly with all of the incredible insight you have that we can put to work. We're going to look to put it to work inside of Vest Ottawa. I'm going to be rewatching this probably twice to take all of that rich content in. It was a pleasure to work with you both. Thank you to everyone who's joined us. Watch our website, watch our social. We will be sharing this interview broadly and helping you put it to work. Thanks very much, everyone. Have a great day. Stay healthy and safe.